Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories of encounters with God. I'm your host, Robin, and I am here with Lindy, Katie, and special guest Dawn has returned. (laughs) We have a story today that we just knew that Dawn's voice was really important to be a part of, and so we're thrilled that she's coming back. (laughs) So today we have Salem, and she is from Birmingham. And Salem has been on our list of potential storytellers for what a long time. Three years, yeah. Um, And one of the one of the real exciting and neat things about um, this quarantine and this period where we can't have live gatherings is that we're able to call these women whose stories we've been wanting Mm -hmm. to hear that maybe we weren't sure where they were going to fit in a live gathering mm -hmm. if they didn't live in that community. Mm -hmm. And Salem is one of those. I know we were just so thankful that she was willing to share her story. She talks about um, depression and loneliness, which are emotions that a lot of us suffer in silence. But Salem just gives us beautiful insight and wisdom and understanding um, of these emotions. And I really can't wait for our listeners to hear her story because she is a beautiful storyteller. She is a beautiful storyteller. And I feel like I had a lot to learn from her, just even from storytelling. So here is Salem's story. Before we start today's story, we want to tell y'all about a new partnership that we are so excited about. Never Thirst is a ministry based out of Birmingham that brings clean water to the most remote villages in the world. And they reached out to us wanting a long-term partnership over the next few months. I know we are so excited about it. One of the things that just really spoke to me when we met with them and they were telling us about their mission is I've been to Africa several occasions. I know the need for clean water and I know the burden that is placed on women and they're addressing those two specific issues. Yes. And um, it is the women in in the villages that is um, tasked with providing water for their families. And so... Just their their model to empower women and really get the village to buy in was something that spoke to us at Storytellers. Yes. But not only the woman, but they also, they are with the local church too. They get behind mm-hmm. them and they build a trust with these communities. And so that they, therefore they're able to bring the water in and then build these relationships with the community to provide this water and then also provide living water. That's right. Spread the gospel. That's right. So we're really excited for y'all to get to know Never Thirst better over the next few months and and hear what we have in store. Thanks, Never Thirst. And you can find them at neverthirstwater.org. So as I began to think about stories and telling my story, something that comes to mind sometimes is new beginnings. And when I was a little girl, I grew up in rural Alabama, Greensboro, Alabama, West Alabama, the Black Belt. And I remember growing up with two brothers, one older, one younger. And so here I am, the infamous middle child and the only girl. (laughs) And I grew up in a household with a mother who was divorced from my father. And I had my own bedroom, which was divine. And outside of my um, bedroom's window was this really, really large tree that sat in our front yard. And as a girl, I kind of got this wild idea that my imagination could take me anywhere. So every morning I wake up and I would look at that tree and I would think, oh my gosh, this tree is like my house, like my own home, like my own sanctuary. And so I would go outside and I would just kind of run around the tree and I would 
talk to the tree and the, and, and the tree was really my friend. I remember just the days of walking around that big, big oak tree in front of our yard and sitting on the front porch with my really lazy dog, Brownie. And as I think of those times, I think as much as they can have a sense of nostalgia for me, they also have a sense of loneliness. And I feel like I've carried that loneliness with me since I was, I don't know, eight years old, probably younger, until now at 44. Now, not years and years and years of consistent loneliness, but a sense of loneliness that just breeds and was brooding. My um, mother and father got divorced when I was maybe uh, in kindergarten. And I remember my first day of kindergarten because I threw up <laughs> that morning. My mom had made me this dress and my mom, she's a, uh, uh, at the time she would sew all of my clothes and she uh, loved to make me dresses. And so she made me this green and white dress with these white flowers. And it had this little lace belt and bow that tied in the back. And I had on my little first day of school socks with the lace on them and uh, my little kids' uh, white tennis shoes. And oh, I was, I mean, I was so excited to go to kindergarten. And my mother was a first grade teacher and my father was a sixth grade teacher. And my older brother was already in school and I would see them every morning kind of load up in my mother's Monte Carlo with the uh, white Monte Carlo with the red uh, top and they would go to school and I would have to stay at home with, uh, at the time we had a babysitter that would keep me and my grandmother would keep me. But it was now time for me to go to school. I had my new dress. I had my little lace uh, socks. And I was going to get in the Monte Carlo and I was going to go with my mom and dad and my brother. And that first day of kindergarten, we've been talking about it and all these great things. And my mom has already taken me to school and I've been in her classroom. So I already know people. So the excitement is brooding. And that first day before we walked out of the house that morning, <laughs> my stomach started to do this kind of dance, you know, just like dancing in my stomach, just dancing in my stomach. And and I'm already excited and dancing around. So I'm dancing with the dance that's happening in my stomach. And before I knew it, my grits and my eggs, well, you know, I'll spare the details, but I threw up all over my brand new first day of school, green and white dress with the white flowers and the lace bow that my mom had sewn for me a week ago. And there I was, and there my mom was just looking at me with her eyes as if, how could you do this? That sense of loneliness came over me in that moment. The same loneliness I carried with me to the new home after my family divorced, after my mom and dad divorced. And that tree was kind of that safe space that kept me grounded. And also, like I said, was my friend. And my story of loneliness continued. I was um, always in the church. And as a, as a young girl, my, um, my mom and um, would take us to church every Sunday and Sunday school. And my mom was a Sunday school teacher. And I always had my little Sunday school book with, you know, uh, my little Sunday school Bible. And we would always run to Sunday school and run to church. And, you know, always knew that church was a place that we had to go. It was a place that was you know, special in my family. But even in Sunday school and even in church with other children and with all the wonderful people and the songs. And 
I used to usher and all those kinds of things, I still felt a sense of loneliness, a sense of I didn't belong, a sense that I was different, a sense that this middle child, this only girl child in this family wasn't heard, was invisible, was unseen. As a young girl, I didn't know what to do with that. So I would go into my imagination and and I would create these wonderful stories about this alternative family. And in this alternative family, I wasn't lonely. They paid me attention. I wasn't invisible. I was loved. I went to the mall. I had all my wonderful stuff. I had my music. I had another sister. I had another dog that just didn't sit there like my dog Brownie because <laughs> my little dog Brownie would just sit there and just look at me. It's like, go on, girl. But this dog that I had in my imagination would just hop on my lap and would just lick my face and was allowed to come in the house. And I think my imagination dog loved me, saw me. I was seen. I didn't feel so invisible or lonely. Fast forward the many, many, many years of my life, always, I think, grappling to get back to that first day of kindergarten, that first feeling of excitement before the throw up or before the eruption of the nerves. But that feeling of excitement, I was chasing through the imagination and through the church and through the loneliness and through my teenage years. My best friend, My mom's best friend's daughter was my best friend. And we were, I was born in April. She was born in June. And we would do every single thing together. And even though I still felt very lonely, I still had her. And I remember one day my mom told me that she was diagnosed with depression. Now, at the time, this was many, many years ago, I'm in rural Alabama. I'm in a black family. I'm in a a all black school. We are I never really heard the word depression, never mind understanding all the context that goes along with depression and what does that mean. All I knew was that my best friend never could go to school and she had to make different choices in her life. But when we were together, we were happy and excited and we were riding in the cars and listening to music. We were doing all teenage stuff. But I knew she was a little different because at church, she wouldn't come. She wouldn't sing in the choir. She didn't help me usher. And all of a sudden hear that she had depression. Her mom didn't drive. So one Saturday, my mom told us that we had to take her to her counseling appointment. And so it's a Saturday and we got in the car, we hopped in the car and we took her to the counseling appointment and she came out and she mentioned that she had her medication and all those wonderful things. And after the counseling appointment, we went to the University Mall in Tuscaloosa, and we <laughs> went uh, just walking like teenagers in the mall, and we went to get some tapes. Now, this was before CDs and was before YouTube and <laughs> all this kind of thing. They had these little square things called tapes, and they had the tape store. <laughs> so you would go <laughs> into the music store where they had all the tapes and stuff, and you could just like, you know, this is an actual thing, friends, <laughs> where you go into the tape store <laughs> that's in the mall. So we're in the mall, and this is my favorite thing with my best friend. We're going to go in the tape store, and we already knew the rap uh, tapes that we were going to get, and we were going to, uh, we knew where they were, and so she was going to get her favorite one. I was going to get mine. I can't even remember how much they cost. I'm, that's something I'm going to have to research because I'm thinking, how much was a tape in 1990? I don't know, 1990, whatever, right? You know, it was probably earlier than 1990. And 
we went in the tape store and I got my favorite. She got her favorite. And we came out with our little black tapes and our little uh, tape store bags. And we were still walking through the mall and having a good time. And we got back to my mom's car and my mom told us we had to take turns listening to our tapes. So we had to decide who's going to be the first person to put their tape in the in the uh, in the car radio tape deck and all these kinds of things. So she put her tape in and let the car windows down and we listened to her her rap song and I took mine down and I listened to mine and we really had a great time that day and it was really exciting. And that was a Saturday and that Sunday after all that tape buying and that rap uh, music listening, we were supposed to go sing in the choir <laughs> that Sunday at church. It was the fourth Sunday, which is Youth Sunday, Children's Sunday, and the children are in charge. And as the children are in charge, part of our role is ushering and singing in the choir and doing youth choir and stuff like that. So me and my best friend, that's what we did. We would go in the youth, uh, do the youth choir. Now, granted, Either one of us could sing, couldn't sing, but it didn't matter. You just had to feel the seats and you had to, you know, repeat after, you know, the, the horrible piano player and be done with it, right? And then everyone was excited that you did your youth day. You did your youth Sunday stuff on the fourth Sunday. Well, this particular fourth Sunday, I got to church. I think I had I had on my uh, green youth people's department dress. So it was called YPD. And we would we had to wear these like green skirts and white blouses, <laughs> and we had this little pin that said YPD Youth uh, uh, per- Youth Persons Department and this kind of thing. So everyone knew it was time for us. YPD was coming in the house, getting ready to sing for the church and the choir and all this kind of stuff. So me still feeling very invisible, especially and very lonely, especially without my best friend. So I'm looking for her. I'm like, hey. Girlfriend, you know, this is our fourth Sunday, YPD. We've got to do what we have to do. This was way before cell phones, so you just couldn't text and, you know, or instant message or DM and, like, figure out where they are, look on their timeline to see if, they, or they're, if they're up or anything and what they're talking about. So I'm just waiting for her mom or, or someone in, who, to bring her to, to drive, who was going to drive them to church, and they never, ever showed up. I went ahead, did my ushering, went ahead and did my choir stuff, and she didn't show up. And I begged my mom when I got back in the car, I said, Mom, can you just go by her house and let's see what's up? She didn't come to church today. And my mom was like, it's Sunday. People miss church. I got to go home and cook. Don't worry about it. You'll see her at school tomorrow. Well, Monday came, and I didn't see my friend. And granted, I didn't even see my friend. And my friend's mother worked at the same school that we all went to, that my mom worked and all this kind of stuff. About four o'clock, about maybe two o'clock in the evening, I was in English class and English class was my favorite class. I was in Miss Burroughs class downstairs in my high school and someone came in and knocked on the door and it's a small rural town. So everyone knows everyone and protocol is pretty much thrown out of the window in school anyway at that time. And we're a community, so folks just, if they, got, if they want to talk to you, if they have something to say, or if your mama wants to come get you, they just open the door and just say, come on, let's go. And so someone came in the door and they said that my best friend had passed away. And at the time, just like depression and all these other great big terms that have been hurled at me in my invisible cloak and my kind of coat of loneliness, I, I just still couldn't understand 
I mean, I, I knew death, but I didn't understand it from the tone of that moment. Being in eighth grade in Ms. Burroughs' class, and granted, English was my favorite class, but Ms. Burroughs' class was very loud and already and rowdy. And then hearing the quietness befall that loud eighth grade English class where people weren't listening to the lesson, but now we were listening to this messenger who came in and talk about and say that my best friend who had died, who happened to be the daughter of the counselor of the school, who's my mom's best friend as well. So all of that information is being hurled around the school. And I remember just getting out of my wooden seat with the metal legs and just walking up the stairs, out the door, outside, and standing in the middle of where the buses come to pick people up in the evening, waiting. I don't know what I was waiting for. I I, I don't know who I was waiting for. I don't know why I was waiting, but my body was in the waiting posture, standing on the sidewalk, looking. I wasn't even even pacing. Now I understand the trauma and all those kinds of things. It probably was the shock, the free, that when you freeze and instead of flee or go do something. I thought, well, maybe I can see her mother because her mother worked as a counselor in a, in a building across from where the English class was. And like, maybe she's going to come out and I can ask her like, is this true? What happened? Maybe I'll see my mother because my mother was an elementary school teacher and I was in middle school and eighth grade. So maybe she'll come out and or maybe the Monte Carlo will come by with the red top. Maybe I could hurry up and get home and sit underneath the tree and just talk to the roots. Just waiting. Depression, death, loneliness and death and unanswered questions and all these things are, were befalling me and have been have, have kind of compiled to become antidotes in my story or an anthology of my story. My best friend at the time, I was 14, we both were 14, and to see a 14-year-old die and not understand from depression. And that's when I was introduced to the word suicide. Now, not understanding depression Certainly not at the time understanding teenagers die or my friends die or people my age die, eighth graders die, English class is interrupted as a result of death, grief, all foreign concepts. Loneliness and invisibility, maybe not so much, but terminology in those areas so much. One day we all of the eighth graders and everyone wanted to honor her. So a couple days after this happened, we all were going to walk to the funeral home and view her body. When I think about that right now, I think that's not a good field trip for teachers. <laughs> but this is, I mean, I, this is the first time I really, really thought about it. I'm like, really? We're going to do, we did a field trip, you know, and the funeral home was across the street from the school. Good old rural country time. And the people who owned the funeral home, of course, were major funders to, to the school. And we're, and we're just, we're all friends. It just was like nothing really foreign about going into a funeral home because it was right there. And everyone knew my best, you know, people who were there and my best friend. And so all of us who were part of, of the eighth grade, you know, the teacher's like, this is what we're going to go do the viewing. And so we walked from the school, which 
I don't know, it was maybe 30 meters to the funeral home to, to view the body and to pay our condolences and to, they told us when we get there, we wrote to write on the ledger and to write a thank you card and do those kinds of things. At the time, nothing prepares First of all, I hate field trips, <laughs> so I already knew this was not going to be a good one. You know, it's like, okay, you know, this is like going to the museum. No, I don't want to go to the museum with a bunch of eight with all my friends. Okay, we're going to the zoo. It's hot. We're going to the park and have, you know, some nature walk. No, I'm not going to eight field trips with a bunch of eighth graders and all of these volunteers and folks. So this field trip, you know, at least we were walking, but at the same time, it felt like, uh, this is not, it didn't feel like this would be one of the top, one of my top ones already. So when we got to the um, funeral home, which I was very familiar with, we all are very familiar with the people, like all know, and we're all in this line, like you're in a line, you know, going to lunch. <laughs> and one by one, we just sign the ledger, sign the card, view the flower and the body or whatever it's there. And we would then turn back around and get back in our space in line. And once the last person has done the routine, we went back 30 meters to our school, went back downstairs, opened the door to our English class and sat back into those wooden desks with the metal legs, opened up our English literature books and listen to um, Miss Burroughs' lesson for the day while everyone continued to talk and scream and loneliness and invisibility and depression and suicide. But let's not say the word suicide. That's what I was reminded. And I remember reading when I was at the funeral home, they have, and I don't know if they do this anymore, but they have a ledger of how people die or the cause of death. And you, at the time you could just go in and you can just say, hey, you know, so-and-so died of cancer at the hospital at 9.05, you know, and you could just go in and look. And the person wrote down her name, time of death and suicide. But then weeks later, I remember my mom and her mom and everyone saying that wasn't true, that we don't talk about that you know, the warped theology in the church, which is a lie that if that's the worst sin of all, which I know knew she had accepted Christ as her savior, which once you're saved, you're saved, there's no. <laughs> so that warped sense of the of, of wrong teaching had already been filtered into the lives of of, of, of youth at where I work, where I went to church. So that was taboo. Then also the confidentiality was breached and the field trip and the best friend and the tape still being in my mom's Monte Carlo's tape deck of what we bought and the loneliness and the invisibility and me underneath the tree and I might have depression. I told my mom after the funeral and I remember, the only thing I remember about the funeral was that it was at our church and they asked the youth department to be in charge. Once again, just like the field trip, <laughs> let's go on a field trip to see this person. Now let's have the youth department, you know, celebrate, help celebrate her life by 
guys, I want you to pass out the obituaries. We want you to prepare the food downstairs, or I want you to stand here and help usher people in. And I just remember feeling faint that day and thinking, I don't think I'm going to be able to hand out bulletins and obituaries, uh, these paper, flimsy pieces of paper with my best friend's picture on the front to strangers and loved ones coming through this door in this crowded, small, historical church. It's hot. It's June. I, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. The last thing I was able to do was walk up to this rose-colored casket, looking inside, and my best friend had on a white dress, and inside of her casket were these soft, cuddly teddy bears, and on top of her chest was a Bible. She had on her glasses, and her hair was pulled back like a bun. She looked bigger than I remember her, a little puffy. I walked away and went back and sat in my pew. Her friends around me were crying. My older brother was crying. And I remember my mom touching my leg and I I wasn't crying. I was like still at the school in front of the buses where I had frozen that day when I heard the news. Popsicle, icicle, invisibility, loneliness. I needed the tree. I needed my tree. At the end of the day and at the end, after the funeral and after all of the pomp and the circumstance happened, went back home and my mom was in the kitchen and I remember her saying, I thought you would take that harder than you did. I didn't even see you cry. Your brother took it harder and all the other people took it so hard. And then my mom walked away and (laughs) went to take the macaroni and cheese out of the casserole uh, dish putting it in individual pieces of foil for people so they can have leftovers. And I left and went and sat under the tree. Months later, I remember telling my mom, and as I was sitting on the porch and she was sitting on the porch of our house one day in front of that tree, telling her, it's like, mom, you know, I'm depressed. And she looked at me and she said, "Mm -mm, no, we're not doing that thing. We are not doing depression around here. You're not bringing the same thing that And she called my best friend's name, brought to her mom's house. You're not doing what she did. You're not getting depressed. Yeah, by the way, when someone says you're not getting depressed, I'm like, how's that going to work out for you, right? Okay, you're not getting depressed. Okay, you're not breaking your leg. Your leg's not going to break. It's not going to break. It's not. I'm telling you, stop it right now. And in that moment, still not understanding depression, But knowing invisibility and knowing loneliness and knowing that I needed the tree and knowing that I felt something and had been feeling something and always knew I was feeling something that was different, I had a word for it. It It's called depression. But I wasn't supposed to get depressed. But what if I was depressed and I wasn't supposed to get depressed? So the whole shame, the whole guilt, the whole no, the whole confusion, back to that day when I was in front of the bus stop frozen, back to the freezing moment, waiting. I don't know what I was waiting for after I told my mom that I was waiting for a hug or waiting for a medication or waiting to go to the counselor that my friend went to or just waiting. I didn't know what I was waiting for. So I went into the cabinet, I believe at one point, and I got some Tylenol and not a understanding medication. I, I took the whole bottle of Tylenol outside in front of the tree while I was sitting on the porch. 
and I felt nothing, not frozen. And, and, and I thought maybe I would feel sick and I would throw up like I did the first day of kindergarten. I thought there would maybe be some excitement because this made sense. And this is what you do when you're depressed. I don't know, but I felt like walking. So I started walking and around the tree and just with my friend, the tree and decided to walk to the store and we were in the country. So the store was right around the street and came back and I still felt nothing. My mom never knew about the Tylenol or, 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 or that day that that happened. And it had no impact on me necessarily. I still felt depressed and it didn't cause me to die or even to get sick. No one knew that I even attempted or tried to do that because I was invisible, lonely, sat under the tree, walked with the tree. It wasn't until I got through college, loneliness, invisibility, and all those kinds of things, and lots of stories in between and out between, but it wasn't until I got as an adult where I began to understand mental health and began to understand depression, not fully comprehend my own depression, but understand the whole the uh, fundamentals and all that kind of stuff. And I realized, oh, that's what, I mean, I hadn't, I had no word for a suicide attempt, had no word for uh, long-term depression. I had no word for any of these kinds of things. I, I didn't even believe that I was a person that did that or could do that, or that was even me because I didn't connect it and it wasn't connected in my childhood and no one connected me with the type of help that I thought I probably needed. It wasn't until I was an adult where I began to unpack and I still am beginning to unpack those things and unpack the devastation of how the church and the lies of the church around mental health and depression, around suicide, around the wrong teaching, all those things that I had comprehended that kept me in an invisible, frozen, lonely cloak that became my coat and my protection. Now, through all this, God is good and my protector because the Tylenol didn't do anything. The invisibility and the loneliness, though it impacted me, it still, I was still alive and I was, and God still allowed, allowed me to thrive and to understand the, the Bible and to go to church and to do all those things. But the loneliness and the invisibility still never left me. And I still began to always wait in the beginning in that frozen state of my life. I wish that I could say that, um, Depression still doesn't follow me and those kinds of things. Suicide doesn't follow me. That story I told isn't the story that I'm telling of my friend. It's the story of, of, of what I'm telling of myself, of how I loved my friend and how I also loved myself and how at the same time we can feel invisible and lonely. And even as an adult, going back into the church and confessing my depression in my 30s, I mean, unbelievable, like, like I'm a, an adult, you know, still trying to form my brain and get validation and, you know, from mature believers and mature administration or supposedly having a pastor tell me sort of kind of what my, my mother said in her own doing the very best that she could way, having a pastor to tell me, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength or weeping doesn't endure for night joy comes in the morning. These very, very, very um, wonderful scriptural 
quotes out of context can cause detrimental things in my life. It caused detrimental things in my life because I'm thinking, well, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I have no strength and I don't have the Lord because the joy of the Lord is not, right? Or I'm I, I, it's, it, I'm waking up in the morning, I, I'm coming to the next stage of my life and I'm still invisible and I'm still feeling frozen and I'm doing all these things that you said that I'm doing. So I became a doer and my faith lessened. But it wasn't until I finally went to a counselor after my divorce and it, this isn't my divorce story, but I was married to a Baptist minister for 10 years or 15 years. Who can remember? Because it's 2020. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm like, what? I need to write that down. But the good thing is the joy Lord is my strength because I don't remember all that. I don't have those details. I, I, I know I'm better in that situation because I was like, I have it down to the date. But it's, it's a long. Yeah. So it's, it's been over 20 years since all that has happened in my life. And after that divorce with him, it was a realization that I had been in an emotionally, financially abusive situation. And my depression was at its height, at its height in that situation. And leaving a, a relationship with a, a pastoral relationship where I was the first lady and I was the Sunday school teacher and pretender and the actor and don't show your depression, be happy, you know, eat, joy, be merry. And I came out and I crashed. And I said, since I was born or eight years old, I was invisible and I wasn't, you know, seen and I was around the tree and I was, and then my friend and I was invisible and I wasn't seen and I was around the tree and then my mom and then the Tylenol and then the marriage and then the church. And then, and so I left that church a couple years after my marriage ended lonely, invisible, metaphorically around the tree. Then I found a writing class and I sat on this lady's red couch for a couple years, crying my eyes out looking outside her window at her tree. <laughs> and I began to write myself back together again. See that imagination I had um, sitting in my bedroom, looking out at that tree, around that tree, walking around that tree, began to foster and cultivate a heart of a writer that I believe God gifted me with. I didn't know it until I was in my mid-30s and had gone through so much of the kinds of schooling and work and all this kind of stuff. And Sitting on her red couch, I began to write myself back together again, sitting with other women, sharing similar stories or listening to their stories, not feeling as if I was some green monster for being depressed, not feeling like I was some elusive person for missing my best friend and not have cultivated another best friend after all these many, many years, not feeling ashamed or allowing the shame to keep me from telling my story of taking have a feeling that suicide was uh, some type of stain on my faith. And these women began to help me realize and see myself as a poet and a writer. And that red couch became my tree. And my writing teacher became a prescription. And my book and my pen became the grounding that that tree once was for me before. The salve, the roots, the branches, the soil. It was my oak. Writing was my oak, is my oak. And it began to save my life. 
And I said, I want to take this red couch metaphorically across the world to other women like myself so they can begin to use their voices, their own voices to heal their lives, whether it's from depression or suicide or from loneliness or invisibility or from lost fellowship or from a loss of faith or from a relationship or a marriage or divorce, all the things I've gone through sitting on that red couch and writing was sort of like the first day of kindergarten where I began to hurl up all of those things. I became myself or learned how to get into alignment to become myself and see how God could restore, redefine, refine imperfections and allow my story to become a story of healing and to realize that my voice had already always been there and he has always given me an oak and that not perfect always starting new beginnings, story unfolding with even more unbelievable things. Writing and the fellowship and the red couch has become a very, very, very important part of of my story and how I started my business, which is a literary healing arts business and all that kind of stuff. But mainly it's in dedication to that little girl who felt invisible, to my best friend who had the courage and the bravery to speak of her depression and to at least walk into a counselor's room and to family members who did their best but couldn't understand to wrong doctrine and theology that can be rewritten and and heard in a way now that brings truth and righteousness to the pure pureness of his word. So I'm here, that's an older story. Lord knows y'all don't want to hear the recent story, my COVID-19 story, because then we just, we wouldn't make it through. (laughs) But that's for another day and or a whole nother (laughs) Zoom, (laughs) you know, a whole nother Zoom. But I'm very grateful that I have writing and I have that red couch. And even today, my, um, during COVID, my teacher has moved to um, Mexico City as if she had the right to do that. Shut down the writing class and Jesus, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it. But even with that, he's equipped me with voice and with fellowship and with friends and with ability and with strength to say that truly the joy of the Lord is my strength, not in a trite way, but in the way of knowing that I know that I know that I know that I have a tool in writing and a tool in fellowship with the pen and the paper and those who do that to continue to write my story and to know that it's going to be ever evolving and to not be afraid to begin again. Thank y'all for listening. We are so thankful to Ceylon for sharing her story and being so vulnerable and so willing to beautifully share all of the details. And before we get into today's discussion, we actually asked her a few questions after her story. So we're going to play those right now before we get into the discussion. Someone who is listening to your story that is struggling with depression, thoughts of suicide, what would you say to them? I mean, to encourage them, to give them hope? Two things. Anyone anyone who's looking, listening, most definitely, I, first thing I would say is you are not alone. Even in our society today where it has become, you know, less uh, of a societal uh, kind of stain is the norm is to talk a little bit more about it. I would say you're never alone. In the faith-based world, I would most definitely say that 
whether you are 14 or if you are 94 or if you're 44 or whatever, like I am, that there is hope for healing through the depression and those thoughts that you're having. None of that, none of those thoughts that you might have or depression or any mental illness or any, you know, sadness you may be going through is an indicator of your level of faith and the way that Christ can work in your life and who you are as a result of Christ. It is depression. Isn't about who you are. It's something that's not, it's something that's happening through the brain chemistry in your brain. It's not you. Depression is not you. You are you. And I'll also say that there is hope and healing and healing looks different for everyone else. And it's not supposed to be perfect. This perfect white Lily type of healing. It might very well be just today. I'm doing better than I was yesterday. And then finally, what advice would you give to someone who is trying to help someone through depression? Absolutely. And everybody's well-meaning. No one is trying to, you know, most people aren't trying to like harm, harm you or harm us when they say those things. But the first thing I would most definitely say, shut up and listen. Like I would say this just to the church in general, just shh, but no, hush up, you know. I know you have all the answers and you probably can point us in the right direction. But first of all, if someone is willing, if if you see something, you know, just listen. I think active listening is so important. You know, it would have been very important to me. It's like, okay, obviously you might have your own thought processing on how to handle that. If you've never gone through depression and just maybe have some sadness and like, hey, I pull myself up out of it, you know. But listen, 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 really listen. And then, of course, I would say to the church administration, you know, to have resources and to be advocates and to be a personal testimony to folks. Like we can't be effective as leaders in the church and all these other things that we're doing if we're hiding our scars and if we are not re- re- uh, releasing our shame and if we're not being honest to the fact of our depression and mental illness and our family and you know counseling and not having those practical tools aligned for our folks. That's what we have to have so when people do come and we listen that we aren't giving them personal advice you know, or a pat on the back that we're saying, Hey, this is real. Here are some resources. And these are compassionate, loving, self-affirming spaces that are honest and for you to be vulnerable in. And this is uh, some things that I think would be helpful and just some suggestions to try. There's so many layers to this story and the questions at the end, I feel like just really brought it all together and made us all think so much. Yeah. And, and just gave hope, I hope, to people who are listening to realize you are not alone in this. I mean, we all suffer um, in some different layers, you know, right. with depression. Yes. And I think that's why the Lord prompted me to be here today to discuss Salem's story. I've known her for many years. She is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I call her a sister because we, we are kindred spirits. And um, I have battled depression myself. And so I know a lot of those roads that she's walked, and um, it is easy for a lot of people to say, um, let me pray for you, and or um, just get over it, or just be in a better mood, or just find peace, that were just, you know, such a trigger for me, because it coming out of depression really is a process, and I love how Salem just gives so many people hope of 
finding tools, um, and also finding the giftings that the Lord has given you to have an outlet to um, find ways of getting out, out of depression. And, you know, it may come back, but what I always say is we can visit, but don't stay there. So sometimes we go back into our depression, depressive states, but when we have tools, we can come back out of that. And I love how she describes the red couch as being her tree, mm-hmm. her comfort, her protection, mm-hmm. and then her pen and paper being just the roots of that mm-hmm. tree. And to me, that just brings it back to the roots of Jesus mm-hmm. and how he's gifted us with these gifts. Yeah, uh, you know, talking about the red couch, even, you know, encouraging those who are listening to speak to someone. And um, and again, I go back to Salem's advice, you know, for, for those who might get spoken to, to really listen. I can really talk about, you know, she, when she was um, married to, in, in ministry, and she just thought, I just have to have it together. You know, I'm going to just act like everything's okay. I can really relate to that. Because when my father passed away seven years ago, I just really went into a funk. And, and I was depressed. I was mad at God. I was angry with myself. And I was leading Bible studies. And I thought, I can't share this with anyone because I'm supposed to be the one that's upbeat and bubbly and heaven and Jesus and have it all together. And have it all together. <laughs> and, um, and it really put me in a funk in my faith at that time. And I think a large part of it was because I didn't share it with anyone. And, um, and really, you know, it, it took me about six months until I finally let some people in and shared it. And it is so true about how, you know, light invades darkness. And when you open up that door to other people to come in and help you, that light does come in. And it does invade that darkness. And it makes you feel that, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. You know, my faith is not any less than because I'm suffering through this. And a a lot of people don't know how to verbally process that they're depressed. And so a lot of people may find that writing or art or Mm -hmm. walking, just so many other outlets, Mm -hmm. if you can't verbally process it, grab a friend and just go walk. Yeah. Yeah. I think sadly, y'all know I'm an Enneagram seven, right? Very, very happily, as us sevens are, but we, we don't, we, we avoid emotional pain at all costs, right? But... And in that, I I related to her mom in this story, and I'm almost embarrassed to say that, but, um, you know, she said, we're not going to do that thing. And Mm. a lot of times, you know, people do say, just snap out of it. Have you exercised? Are you exercising enough? Are you, you know, instead of really listening. And and that's, that was my takeaway. Yeah. Um, And, you know, at the end, what just really spoke to me is when she said, depression is not you, you are you. Uh, and man, that's that's so applicable for anything in our life that we we take on as who we are when it's not the truth. We we are us. God made God made me, Robin, me. Mm-hmm. Um, not what I do or how I feel or what I'm about. It it's just such a reminder. Mm-hmm. So again, we are so thankful to Salem. And if you want to reach out to her, if this spoke to you, the literary healing arts, I mean, that what an opportunity and what an outlet for, for people, especially right now. And, and it's literary healing arts with an S arts.com. And you can find her there. And if you're interested in, in becoming a part of what she's doing and this creative outlet she's providing, it's really amazing. And so thank you for listening today. We would, you know, we always say that we love for you to pass along our stories, but this feels like one that's so specific that, you know, there are certain women listening today that this story is for you. 
And so we're praying for you. We've been praying since we recorded this story that this one story is for you. And so we just are thankful when you pass it along and give us a response. Let us know how God's spoken to you through this story. So have a great week and we will talk to you next week. Bye.